Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, good to see you again. We are edging toward Christmas. And I don't know if this is your influence or not, but I'm becoming... Well, I, it's not an explicit influence, but I've been drinking tea a little bit of late. And, and it always... <laughs> Good man. I think Good it, man. it generally happens when we're talking. When we get on, when we get on the pod, you're like, you know what, Chris, England... Yeah. Yeah, I should, it, I should get into the tea thing. Do you think that's subliminal? Well, if it would be, how would we know? That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> this is, that's, that's, yeah, we can, it's, it's, it's unknowable. But yeah, it's, uh, but you know, it's funny. I drink coffee black. Like, just, yeah, I don't ever put anything in it. And I, okay, I that's hardcore. Espresso, espresso black. Like, I mean, the only thing I will drink with anything other, with a little milk in it is I, I, I tried this flat white a couple weeks ago. It's like a kind of uh, frothy espresso drink. Like yeah, a, no, 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 no. Yeah, the flat white is my go-to. Yeah, yeah. I, I, this is fantastic. I don't know where this was all my life, and I did like that. <laughs> but other, it than, was in Australia and New Zealand. Exactly. And I apparently we, we're finally catching up. We are catching up, <laughs> and so with tea though, I'm drinking with the tea with cream and sugar. Well, cream and and truly at truvia okay no i don't do i don't do sugar in either my tea or my coffee but i i can't do black coffee that's that's my mother's business i i need my frothed up milk and you know as a writer i've got quite a, a, a like a coffee machine i i put in the whole beans i grind it i tamp it down i i pour my espresso and i froth my milk and i add it together and it's it's this wonderful kind of you know like it takes a good 10 minutes it's a nice procrastination ritual Right, you kind of you feel like, oh, I've done a couple hours of writing, and I can reward myself and go over to the kitchen and and make myself a coffee. So, I, I mean, having for a lot of my life felt that I'm absolutely not a, a caffeine person, um, it became I came to it through the ritual of writing, and then it seemed like a kind of an indispensable component of of that side of my personality. But it's interesting; the flat white has kind of over the last couple of years, it's now come out of the market i i'm i'm heading home for christmas in well a day or two uh, from when we're recording this and i remember a couple of years ago when i would go home to western canada and i'd go to a starbucks and ask for a flat white and they would just stare at me blankly like well, what is that and I'd, I'd explain what i wanted them to do and it didn't didn't ever really kind of come out the the right way whereas now it's it's everywhere yeah starbucks so. has it which is once it's once it's, but, yeah. starbucks has it it's it's part of the commercial once once Starbucks has it, it's no longer cool. No, so, no. Yeah, Although I, but, I, I like yeah. Starbucks. I don't know. It's it's it is commodification in the worst of probably the the McDonaldization of the world. But like it, it thing is, it's always they're nice places to spend a little time. Well, that's true. They they do that well, right? They they've identified that there's this niche of people who are are in between places at the moment and want a nice place to spend a little time. And you know they serve that audience really well. The so. niche you need the niche. Hmm. What about uh, what about you for Christmas? What do you? I will you be, be local. I will be in my other one of my other hats and robes. I will be celebrating. I will be the celebrant, the liturgist at the Clover Hill Reformed Church in New Jersey, where I'm serving as kind of an interim minister, and they're without a pastor right now. So I I'll be there for you know it's a slightly long term kind of gig. So I'll be doing two Christmas Eve services, and uh, then wow. we will. Come back here, and we might, you know, I, uh, we, you know, we might host some people for Christmas who kind of don't have a place to go. Neither of us are going home to to immediate or extended family, so we'll be here in mm. in the Philadelphia mm. area, and and I'll be uh, doing religious duties. And uh, it's uh, it's been a while since I've been in a traditional church context like this. I've been in more startup kind of thing, so it's. I really enjoy it because we're wearing like I, I it's like uh, there's a oh you get to you get to go full vestments uh, some vestments a church musician who's excellent and a quiet lessons and carols so it's a kind of a mm. hallmark mm. Christmassy it's not a hipster mm. Christmas it's a home and I kind of like that there's like the church was mm. has a graveyard mm. there are people buried there from like the early 18th century it's like mm. it's on a, a hilly kind of topographical spot in New Jersey it's, it's lovely mm. so I will be doing so, okay. doing things Christmassy. So it's all starting to fall into place now. It makes sense 
to me why you, you said like, look, you know, I really want to spend uh, the podcast, the run up to Christmas, talking about the relationship between religion and democracy. And and when you suggested that, I thought, okay, okay, like I, I feel like. I'm going to be at a disadvantage this whole conversation because now we're on sort of this is your core intellectual turf. I'm going to try to hold my own, um, but you're going to have to pick me up a couple of times. I feel like my core intellectual turf is the Wrath of Khan, my favorite Star Trek. <laughs> but that's really where I – we've actually talked about this before. But Khan! Yeah, I, I like the Ricardo Montevallis. Khan, I've done far – or Kirk, I've done far worse then kill you. I've hurt you. Like, like the Ricardo Montalban is so great in that. Not a tall guy, by the way. Like, it was like. Did you did you ever see the original series episode Space? Of scene? course, I've seen it dozens and dozens of times. Okay, so I mean, this distinguishes the you know the true Trekkie like yourself from the wannabe like me because I've never seen. Oh it. gosh, you can get it on iTunes. The, you could you could get it on Pirate Paper. It's amazing. I mean, it, Ricardo Montalban is just a. Uh, he, he's the force of nature on the screen. I mean, he he it, mm. he really is. I mean, it's mm. it's an amazing episode. I I can't okay. say enough good about it. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go away and watch it, and then I'll be able to have a have an intelligent conversation with you about it. It reminds me of uh, like um, oh, this was several months ago, and I was chatting with a, a friend in Toronto who. Um, He's a AI researcher and executive. I mean, like at a senior level, he had been he had been headhunted at that time most recently by one of the big global handset manufacturers to uh, set up uh, one of their five global AI research labs. And and you know we're we're, we're talking about it because obviously I'm interested about in this issue, like one of these big issues that everyone in the world is talking about. So I'm interested in it too. And we talked for about five minutes, and he kind of looked at me skeptically, and he said, "You know what, Chris." You just need to go away and learn a bit more about how to like do programming and stuff, and then we can have a conversation with you. And I feel the same thing now. I, I just need to go away and spend a bit more time watching Space Seed a few times. Such and then a I can good have a conversation. episode. Such a good episode. <laughs> Such a good episode. So yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I will say this. I I so I sent you some articles this weekend I, I, that I came across through various places. People sent them, and just in my own reading and stuff. And I I there are. I, I, although, I, you know, I, it's like that there was this, uh, kind of commercials. I mean, I guess they had them in the Northeast in the United States. I don't know if, I guess they had them other places too in the 80s. The, the hair club for men. And the guy said, I'm not also, at the end of the commercial, the guy said, I'm not also the president of hair club for men. Also, a client. oh, yeah. Right. And he pulled off his toupee. Right. So <laughs> I'm not just, you know, the, the president, also a client. Like, kind of, I, I, I mean, I, I would, I would check a religious box and a census of a Christian. I've, I've, I wasn't raised in the most observant home, but I kind of, I feel like I had a coming to faith sort of journey in adolescence and, and then, which, you know, matured and developed into adulthood. But I, I, that being said, I have never been on the side of people that feared a secularization process that, that people that, I mean, people like Alistair McIntyre mm. or people like that, that sort of were democracy skeptics because of you know i mean mcintyre's interesting guy philosophically started as a marxist eventually became a, a, a catholic through reflection on aristotle and aquinas I, i've mm. never been sympathetic to those arguments and, and i'm still generally not but i but i am picking up on critiques that are not quite the same as people like mcintyre's but but you know those i mean mcintyre in general is a modernity skeptic but 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 people like Andrew Sullivan, who is a sort of you know gay Catholic, used to be a Thatcherite conservative, voted for Obama, sort of as moderate as moderate as you can get. You know, wrote this piece in his Intelligence column, really talking about America's new religion and talking about how basically, in the absence of a, a, of a great tradition in the secular vacuum, we just get new religions. You can't get rid of the religious impulse in human beings, but you have this mm. desire to sort of mm. make things transcendent and sacred. And, and he looks at cultish politics and how, and in the worst kind of religion, I mean, not a kind that is is the deepest, but the kind that is almost, that causes sort of zealotry or something. And he looks at, at the kind of Trump, disciples on one hand and the social justice warriors on the other as right people. and the social justice on the other side yeah 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 which i thought was so i i agree it was a great article and everybody should read it and 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 part of the intellectual strength of it is that he was able to kind of say look so here's here's what i'm starting to question here's what i'm wondering is uh can like is there just this impulse is there this human need for a kind of um 
an answer to the meaning questions. And in society, and if we are kind of moving into this postmodern era, then, then how are we satisfying that need? But I thought what was great about the article is that in the U.S. context, he, he kind of looks to um, you know, the cult of Trump, which is sort of, I guess, the obvious place people go to, to you know, looking for an explanation of what's going on in society. But he also looks to the left and to what, yeah, as you point out, the, the, what he calls the cult of social justice. And so I think that makes his argument stronger that he said, yeah, actually, this is happening everywhere. And so it suggests that this is some kind of deep-seated need that we, we all have. And and if that's true, then what are the implications for that? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, that, that's and I mean, and that's that's an assumption, right? And 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 it's a debatable assumption, right? I mean, you could, you know, and even if you granted it, you could say, well, we'll out of we'll we'll evolve out of it, or I mean, there you, you could you could the kind of homo religi- religioso or homo religious, you know, like I mean. I mean, homo economists, I shop, uh, you know, I shop, therefore I am. I mean, we're, we're consumers and that will be, you know, for the mm. future. But, mm. but the religion, but, but it does seem, you know. No, no, no. So hold on. So the homo religious is, I, I pray, therefore I, I am. I guess I pray. Yeah, I pray, therefore I Yeah, but the, I mean, I think. Or, or now that, I, now these days I, I, I download my meditation app. <laughs> meditation app, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, that that's, uh, yeah, but you know, the, I think that, that. At least for most of world history, and and, and today, I mean th- that's still the case. Even in a place like the United States, that is well, some of it you have the Bible Belt in, in places that are increasingly mm-hmm. religious, but the blue states, the coast, the population centers are waning. But people aren't becoming atheists by and large. I mean, people still, uh, you know, even the unaffiliated still mark themselves down as spiritual. There's a, a huge growing phenomena that people that call themselves the spiritual but not religious, right? And and, and again, mm, when you mm, do the Gallup mm. surveys, most people will say they believe in God and things like this. So that so it's an interesting phenomenon that at least it seems like for the foreseeable future there is some transcendent thing or desire for transcendence and meaning that people seek. And the absence of something truly transcendent, you know, in Western or Eastern kind of flavor, that people you know, turn to the imminent realm and try to make it transcendent, to try to reach for what's around them and try to sort of deify it. So I guess, so there, there, there are many directions we can go here. I suppose one that kind of connects a lot of the current urgent headlines to this deep searching question is, you know, do we, do we need to have a kind of come to Jesus moment, you know, with, <laughs> with ourselves about this is the reality that we are meaning-seeking beings and that one way or another we're going to try to find a practice of seeking meaning and and that we need to recognize that and serve that in some healthy way. Otherwise, it might express itself in society in some unhealthy ways. And I think that's that's kind of part of the argument that, that Andrew Sullivan was proposing. Absolutely, you know, and who's the guy who runs the School of Life? Uh, you know him in England. Um, yeah, 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 Alain de Botton. Alain yeah. de Botton. He he's interesting because he's an atheist, but he's a guy that like one of the best defenses of original sin I've ever heard was from him on a, on Krista Tippett's show in the states. He was saying, you know, like I, I don't believe in God, but I see this idea of original sin. It bears out an experience, and it, it's a, it, it, what a more charitable way to live life with yourself and others realizing we're flawed human beings. And so a guy like hmm. him, he even has these sort of Sunday gatherings for secular people where they give like secular sermons. And, and he is one that's tried to take some of the insights from this sort of Judeo-Christian and, and other places. And, and even if you can't believe in God, let's look at sort of what the anthropology that's come out of this traditions tells us about the human condition. Cause it's like, I mean, the good thing about traditions that survive I mean, there's a reason people are still Buddhists and Christians and Muslims and people by and large don't worship Zeus or Odin, right? Because those traditions tend to not be able to have explanatory power in the world anymore. But ones that still do tend to be good repositories of of, of observance of the human condition, right? I mean, th- just because they're evolving traditions. And so is there mm-hmm. some something that can... And I think Sullivan is saying when you, when you jettison them, it, it often would become more base and, 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 and devolve. Hmm. So it's really interesting this... Because it seems that, you know, whether we're talking about religion or we're talking about tribalism, it seems that one of the meta-themes in how we kind of look out at the world today and try to make sense of it is as this contest between the rational 
and the desire to build some kind of rational society and a recognition of irrational elements of our nature. I mean, that, that might not be the right way to frame it, but there is this kind of we, – we, we tend to seem to look to um, human nature as something that maybe in the present we've been – we we've 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 gone too far in defiance of some truths about ourselves that we need to be uh yeah more honest about and more in alignment with if we want to build a healthy society that actually works that actually delivers to people some of the needs they have like for belonging like for being a part of a practice of of finding meaning yeah, yeah, it's interesting because because what and I would say I, I, rather than irrational, I'd want to almost say non-rational or or things. That right, are, irrational or, is the wrong word. Because yeah. what does uh, Pascal yeah. say? Like the heart has reasons that only re, mm. uh, that reason doesn't understand. Or, you know, the, the, there's multi levels, multiple levels of because you know Sullivan gets at this. He says, you know, in, in the article, he says this is why science can't replace it. Science does not tell you how to live or what life is about. It can provide hypotheses and tentative explanations, but no ultimate meaning. Art can provide mm -hmm. escape from the deadliness of our daily doing. But again, appreciating great art or music is ultimately an act of wonder and contemplation has almost nothing to say about morality and life. Although I might quibble with him a little on the, on the art piece, but, but I, mm -hmm. you know, th this is, this something that, that transcends our, our deductive abilities and stuff that, 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 you know, we, we want to have meaning, you know, I mean, we want to have, and we want there to be, it, it's funny because, I think it's stronger than that. I think we need there to be meaning. Yeah, anytime listen we, to, we need the meaning. Listen to the person that tells you they're an atheist, right? The moment mm -hmm. they use ought language, the moment you, you mm -hmm. make a distinction between is and ought, mm -hmm. you're speaking in metaphysical capital letters. Right? You're saying you're saying that there that there's a norm outside of experience that experience ought to conform to. Right. Right. No, I think that you're right. That there's a there is so the denial of religion i suppose you know it also has many of the aspects of religion like there's a cultish aspect of it like we are of this belief this creed that we don't believe these things uh there's kind of a set of devotions around it around you know the kind of practice of denying um and of confronting the the believer with a certain set of skepticisms and, and you know and there are rituals and and even prayers around it too it just tends to be meditation or some kind of buddhist thing where it's a it's a religion without god which i think one of the articles that you threw up also mentioned like that was maybe one of the genius things about buddhism is it managed to create a religion without a god yeah yeah envisions transcendence and, and, really differently non-personally which mm -hmm. i think is yeah is mm -hmm. is is and there's a beauty in that a deep beauty in that tradition so I think you know for me as the political scientist one of the one of the concerns I then have is okay because so what what do we what do we do with that and you know standing here in Europe it's very interesting because I one of the things that I know a lot of uh, politicians in Europe struggle with maybe more kind of you know politicians who have been in this game for the last sort of 20 years. They're, they're not newly come to office. They've got a longer time horizon for this. And, and what they see that has clearly changed, um, and it's not just Brexit and recent phenomena, but more of a longer-term thing, is uh, an increasing role of religion in the politics of Europe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, there has been for a long time a notion, well, we're, we're trying to separate those things, right? We're trying to separate church and state on this continent. And, and, and we have the role of religion kind of fits uncomfortably into our political processes. We don't really know how to, how to navigate it very, very skillfully. And, and what happens when the moral argument is made in a debate in, in a political debate culture where at least nominally what we think we're doing is having some kind of rational argument and we're looking for evidence and we're looking for facts and it's kind of, you know, more objective, positivist evaluation of what's best rather than having a, 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 a notion of the right or the good that comes from a faith tradition that might be at odds with other faith traditions, right? And 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 given that we're a plural society or 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 a plural democracy, how 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 would we possibly mediate that? Because so I'm sort of working this out aloud as I think about it. But it seems that so so democracy is kind of predicated on this idea that if we all just sort of talk and listen to one another, we can find some common ground. Whereas religion often 
at least, and maybe this is the concept we need to contest a bit around this idea. That, well, there, there are things where there can't be common ground because I believe this and it's different from what you believe and we can't both be right. And I think that the the sort of layman's understanding of why we need to get religion out of politics is precisely because religion has these uncompromising senses of right and wrong that uh, eliminate the, the overlap, eliminate the space for some kind of political consensus to emerge. Well, yeah, and I think just on a, on a pragmatic level, the, the absolutism, the idea that if you get God out of the public square or something, that people become less absolutist and, and consensus becomes easier. I mean, mm. you, I mean that, that just, whether or not we, I mean, right. you look at the uh, po- political intractability on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm just thinking of, of, mm. of, you know, North America or United States rather. And, 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 and little I know of Europe's politics. I mean, that, you know, mm. things, the naked public square doesn't make things. In fact, again, Europe is in a new seat with it, with some of the nationalist parties and things. That's it, it, it's just wild how uh, how things are seeming to become to become more contentious. Uh, hmm. Yeah, so I think that I mean that I mean that you know the other thing that's interesting. I think there's a there's a, a book that's come out last year or something. I think maybe or maybe this year called "Why Liberalism Failed" by Patrick Deneen, who's a political scientist at I think Notre Dame. And he basically argues that that democracy hasn't really fulfilled its promises. It's supposed to foster equality, but we've got all this inequality in the United States, you know, not just among racial lines, but now also income inequality seems to be at a new high, you know, Hmm. it's supposed to give average people control over the government, right? But you you survey most people, poll most most people feel completely alienated from the government. You it's supposed to foster liberty, but you know, a lot of people we have we we have most people don't feel particularly free. You've got you've got you sort of mega corporations and things like this that, you know, people people's data gets sold, all this stuff. I mean, most people don't feel uh, like that this has been an incredibly liberative project or many people don't feel that way. So I think that that mm. that I mean this sort of and then, you know, you have somebody like Donald Trump elected who just, you know, I mean, just seems to be a repudiation of some of the civic virtue, many of the civic virtues that that liberalism was supposed to foster. So all these things, I think, create a create a sort of skepticism about the liberal project that I think that, you know, that that, that is raising some of the questions back about, well, maybe uh, you need maybe maybe democracy with other soul doesn't function as well. You know, it's it's interesting because we um, where my mind is going is thinking about how you know at some level we kind of we divide uh, reality into these spheres, right? There's sort of religious life over there, there's political life over here, um, but oftentimes those divisions are artificial. And if we're looking at kind of you know engagement as a sort of search for meaning, there is a maybe a sense that, you know, sometimes whether that meaning comes from the political or from the religious or from some other wellspring of meaning, uh, it, 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 you know, it, 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 it can vary where it's coming from. Like in times of war, in times of national crisis, in times of nation building, there can be enormous uh, meaning and satisfaction of that search for meaning in the political project with one another and a sense of community and all of that. Um, and, and, and then in times of relative political stability where, you know, politics doesn't have, it doesn't in, it doesn't emotionally draw people in, or it doesn't spiritually draw people in, then there are other dimensions of society, of reality that, 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 that play that role. And, and so I wonder if, you know, there's a, so I think there's another dimension to sort of what is happening with uh, the cult of Trump or the cult of social justice uh, that Andrew Sullivan talks about, which is, was was there sort of a large group of of people who just, you know, the, the other wellsprings of meaning in society really weren't offering much? And so we need to go back. 
and and find some other resource. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the case. And I think that that actually what Sullivan argues, and I think he's right about this, that, that actually it's much healthier when politics doesn't give you that kind of meaning. Because then you, mm. you can kind of be procedural about it and you can, you know, so I was listening right, right, to somebody right. the other day mm. that said like basically the founder, founding mm. fathers of the United States designed a system where you really had to realize there's checks and balances and you're going to be on the losing side regularly and, and you accept that's the cost of having a mm. thing where there's, where there's kind of, it, it, right. there's a bunch of, but, but against, not to be. But not to be too tied up in that. right, right, exactly. Yeah. That, that, not to be too invested in being the loser in the political. Yeah, the, the real, that real flourishing of the society will come from the civil society and things like that. The government will have a mm. function in it, mm. but but it but it really will be a, a, a you know its function will be limited so that it gives other spaces room to flourish. So so that's interesting. That completely makes sense. And then one starts to wonder, like, if you look at the context today, was that a naivete of the founding fathers? Was that a kind of, you know, a very enlightenment thinking that we're just going to build this sort of whole rational political framework over here? It's going to be boring and it's going to be quite deliberative and it's going to function. But we're not going to get uh, we're not going to get invested in the way that we get religiously invested. That's something that happens over here. And it's very clearly a separate sphere. And I mean, a lot of the if you call it the political entrepreneurship of the present is to. Um, to just explode that kind of um, dividing of the roles of different institutions of society to play the meaning role, and uh, let's 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 inject a whole big dose of uh, tribalism into our political discourse. So let's inject a whole big dose of sort of relig- religiosity into our political discourse because that's that's actually far more intuitive for people, I think. Than to hold on to a a division that says, okay, this is going to be coldly rational and boring over here, and the rest of my life I'm going to be passionate about things. Yeah, and, yeah. What's interesting too? So, so there, yeah, so there, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so I, I mean, I'm sort of thinking yeah, ahead, just to build on that. So it seems that there is a, there is a kind of there is an incongruity in 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 all of this because you know if if politics is meant to be a kind of cold sphere where you know don't get too invested in it sometimes you're a loser and that's okay um then that's certainly not how we try to sell people on it you know you have to vote it's your civic duty it's really important that you do this and that you you know and and we got to get out the vote and mobilize we got to find the charismatic leader there are so there are so many uh instances in the practice of our democracy where it seems that we've completely forgotten this this rather enlightenment ideal that yeah this is all great and it's wonderful but we also want to keep it a bit boring yeah yeah and i i think it's interesting because the dualism strikes me as interesting because it's that the founding fathers set up this of the united states set up this system that seems to take original sin very seriously in the political sphere like hey people will be selfish Mm. people will be uh will be adversarial and let's build all that into the system and let's make checks and balances and, and that kind of thing but then they kind of have this almost their anthropology changes in civil society. People will be really good here and you'll get this educated citizenry that will be wonderful and make these. Mm. And I think, well, yeah, I don't know if we're mm. if we're so suspicious about people once they get into government, what makes us think people are so enlightened outside of it that we're going to have this civic society of virtue <laughs> that will then produce the educated <laughs> citizenry to go then participate in these decisions in, in, in the system that's set up with all these checks and balances. But that's like, I mean, that's the first thing that strikes it, which it, it, I mean, the second thing is like, I think, so, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, uh, I, all I was going to say is, so where this all takes me is to a kind of appreciation that, you know, probably the way, the way this all works out practically, I mean, the, there's no kind of you know game masters who set the board and they put borders around different aspects of our social reality and say okay when you're in a political sphere we want you to behave that way and this is our anthropology when you're in a civil society sphere we want you to do that because that's not going to work it it seems that the way that democracy has to function is that rather you've got a really healthy kind of separation of powers in society. And maybe, so nowadays when we think of separation of powers, we think kind of in the constitution, there's a legislature and a judiciary and an executive over there. But but, but in, a, in an even bigger sense, right, you need a healthy democracy. So you've got a religion over here 
that you know has its own set of it's like a value factory of a certain way of looking at the world um but you also need you know an act an academy healthy academics over there that have a very different way of looking at the world and they're a very different value factory you've got a thriving private sector that is a value factory over here you've got you've got a political class that's a value factory right professionals and and if you really did have uh, separated value factories in society, then I think, you know, messy or chaotic, if from time to time one sort of seems to invade the space of another, I, I think that I think that we would weather all of that. Where it gets maybe more dangerous is if uh, one value factory tends to kind of become dominant. Absolutely, yeah. And it's sort of winning the war over the others. I think that, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to some discussions this week about, you know, the Weekly Standard, which was kind of a famous conservative intellectual outlet. Uh, one of those intellectual magazines that loses money, you know, like, uh, but, it, you know, it's, it, but, you know, they were talking about its demise. And a lot of conservative intellectual publications in this country have taken some heat in the age of Trump because a lot of the never Trumpers had been located in them to various degrees. And they were saying, look, it's never been the job of intellectual publications to tow party lines. It, it's hmm, right. it's been the it, it's been their role to critique ideas, to hold its own intellectual compatriots, to keep them honest. It's not to be an extension of political parties, even if you're a conservative or liberal. You know, and he talked about the New Republic. Right, it, it was good at this too. I mean, the New Republic was always a check on the left as well as a liberal magazine. It always it always like it always kept the left honest. And and this was, is you know this is part of what you're talking about. I think. Yeah, what was the big publication on the right? That the Weekly Standard. Down? The Weekly Standard, right? So, so yeah, this is what I'm talking about, kind of the the erosion of these independent value factories. I mean, as someone who is very close to the academy, I mean, I can look at the academy, which is sort of, say, you know, universities and researchers and academics. No, I, I, I think that uh, is far less value independent than it used to be. And you can see whether it's whether it's organized capital interests, whether it's sort of how the funding environment has changed and the academy is more a client of government and therefore has to appease its sort of policymaker clientele. So the political economy of this gets kind of deep and thorny, but but I think that it is less of a I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say among academics that the academy, capital A, is less of an independent a power in society than it's ever been. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And even consumer interest in the United States, it's, it's also like, well, we're, we're, we've gone from being educators to pleasing our students as customers. You know, we want to, because right. it, it, you know, it changes the whole, yeah. the whole game. Michael Sandel writes about this, right. And talks about the marketization of everything and, and how it seems that everything is for sale and how that change. Yeah, exactly. Changes the game. So it, it, it crowds out a lot of, um, behaviors in society that used to be moral choices, right? We, we stand in line in a queue, at least in this country, London, because that's the moral, that's the right thing to do. But once places in the queue at the amusement park are available for sale, you can like pay 20 bucks and cut the queue, then the institution of waiting politely for your turn is diminished. So, I, And so I think what happens when sort of these independent value factories actually start to kind of merge into one. And, you know, the media, similar example now, where, you know, I guess Fox News is maybe the clearest example. If this is the media reflecting the interests of a particular political and economic class. And and I think... Yeah, what and here we don't have state-run media. We have... We have a media... We have media runs the state. states. Yeah, yeah, like, like, yeah. like, 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 like you know, Trump gets up and, and, and tweets out what Judge Jeanine or Sean Hannity said to tweet mm. Fox and Friends. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and so... <laughs> Uh, let's yeah well we can go there we, we yeah i mean so it i think it makes for wilder swings it makes like it, it's a roller coaster where the peaks are higher and the valleys are lower and there's a few big loops now because there are so many engines that are aligned that we we, we go big one way or maybe we go big the other way and i think we can feel we can feel that the ride is getting wilder because you know some of these stabilizers are just not playing 
the role that they once did. And it's really interesting as I sort of hear myself saying that because as as a non-American looking at the U.S. political system, as a political scientist, one of the things that we always used to talk about is, you know, people say that the U.S. political system is dysfunctional and Congress can't get anything done, but that was what the framers intended. And the virtue of it is that it's really hard to make big changes. And there are all of these wonderful checks and balances. There's kind of gridlock by design because it should be really difficult to um, to to do big new things at at a federal level and you know kind of the the received wisdom in political science was to have a grudging respect for a system that was built that way now what we're seeing is a recognition of the opportunity well you know maybe we can just plow through the gridlock <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you get a get a really big you know a really big suv hit the gas, you know, get a few friends behind you and you can just smash through the traffic. Or, or Trump's great quote after a couple months of the presidency, who knew healthcare could be so complicated? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. We've, we've, we've almost made it through two years. Almost. That's We're getting there. Almost. Yeah, almost. yeah. No, I think that that's, you know, the other thing that's interesting to me is that in the, I'll put all these articles in the show notes, but this, in the Sullivan piece, where he's talking about these sort of virtues that are meant to, or values meant to sort of infuse the democratic liberal project that, you know, what, what a religion like Christianity and, and, and you say this about Judaism too, you get most great world Hmm. traditions. This would probably hold true for, but I'll just speak from a particular point of view and, and liberalism, the enlightenment liberalism have in common is they're in non-tribal. You know, I think of this, this scene in the book of Acts when Paul comes to Athens and he, he preaches the sermon to the Athenians and they're in the Agora, all these, you know, you know, the town, the, 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 the hood of Socrates. And one of the first things he said, there was the tradition that Athenians were made, came sprouted from the soil of Athens and that they were different than everybody else. And Paul just says, no, everybody comes from the same human seed and, and God is the maker of us all. And so that immediately sort of undermines this kind of, Athenian centric mm. narrative, right? So that everybody, mm. and, and, and mm. you know, this is, you know, Paul set rights to, uh, it, it, to, I think, the Church of Galatia, you know, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, that this new reality comes. I mean, philosophers like mm. Zizek write about Paul, like he was the original Marxist. I mean, he has this whole revolution going on around this, you know, mm. and, and both Christianity and the liberal project come and say, no, these tribal distinctions are artificial and then we should have a more universal scope on on the nature of our human predicament and how we can you know mm. come to reason together and share things together and i think the return of religion in a place like europe and now in america in certain kinds of populism is actually a lot more like the paganism paul confronts in athens than what he's preaching to them it it actually it doesn't call us to common realization of, of a universal shared humanity and universal source and, 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 and universal empathy. It's sort of like it's blood nation and soil, <laughs> which is, which is, mm. which is absolutely what a religion like Christianity and a philosophical movement like the enlightenment are, 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 are kind of trying to move us beyond. Mm. And so it's interesting that we, you know, in this moment that we, we so often talk about it as, you know, postmodern, Right. And all of uh, every, everything, everything, every meaning is contested that where we get to as we, as we start to contest everything is a recognition of how much work moral frameworks have done and do do to hold society together. Absolutely. And, and, And so I think that that's, maybe that's the sort of you know Andrew's big message that he's he's working with is so so you know so quite clearly the big institutional religions have receded you know at least in american life uh, catholicism protestantism and in that place there is and and what we discover is there is a need for some kind of moral framework to rush in and and help to inform us in in kind of the, a billion little everyday situations of how do I behave here because the market doesn't tell us how to do everything right and and rationalism doesn't tell us how to do everything we need we need some some like moral heuristics absolutely to help us navigate navigate our reality and it, and it's interesting so I had a great conversation with the another place and and I agree with you in quibbling with the idea that 
that art doesn't give us, you know, some introduction to morality in life. You know, I think great literature. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Is, is a rich reservoir of sort of moral lessons. You really, you can't read any book without, uh, without receiving some kind of uh, morality play through it. You know, good and evil, we often follow the protagonists because they're the good people. They're demonstrating the virtues or they're fighting a good fight or they're demonstrating the determination or whatever it might be. So, you know, maybe either, you know, either we need religion or we need great literature. And the danger is when we, you know, stop going to church and we stop reading good books. And and then there really is a vacuum. Is where do we get the where do we get the the archetypical lessons that we can then apply to you know our particular where do we get the universal lessons that we can apply to our particular moment moment to moment situations that we encounter in life? Yeah, G.K. Chesterton, great British thinker, said you know that a democracy tradition is is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. But he talked about the democracy of the dead and the ability. Of- Boy, sorry, this democracy is the oh, living he said, tr- faith. He said tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. So for him, traditionalism is when we do things like without any sense for their deeper meaning, and you're just kind of it's okay. road or road. But he says tradition is, and, and he talks about the importance of the democracy of the dead. In, in our culture, that that we don't we 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 don't see, we we don't veto the voices of the dead just because they're dead. <laughs> that that there's a mm. there's a repo- great repository of of wisdom in ancient spiritual traditions and literary traditions that that, mm. that we tend to be fat. I mean, you know that that, that you know, we tend to sort of in the age of social media and stuff, we tend to fetishize the novel, right? I mean, but novel by not mm. I don't mean the the literary. I just mean what's new, you know. What, what's 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 the latest thing and, hmm. and and that's important because you know without the new we, we slide into what he calls traditionalism right you know that, that that we become like sort of you know cul-de-sacs without new life but there's there's important wisdom in those ancient receptacles they become repositories of great things that that we ought that ought to inform our, our conversation about the good life so so let's let's bring this back if we can to kind of um you know personal levels so when we just before we we kind of press play on this podcast i said you know so there's just so many threads here what for you is the what's the guiding light what's the what's the question at the heart of everything we're talking about and and you gave me this great question which is uh you know can we have democracy without religion which whoa dude that's a good question (laughs) heavy dude heavy yeah yeah oh well well in canada i can smoke things now it's legal i love it um yeah, uh, we got to do the next podcast in Canada. <laughs> so, but so so you know, we've so up uploading everything we've just been talking about in this podcast, and you know, next week you're going to put on the robes, get robes, get into a, a church and, and play, not play, but that's the wrong word, but but um, you know, enact your role as as a minister. Yeah, I go from citizen jones to reverend jones (laughs) yeah yeah so so exact yeah which is very cool and i got i got i got to sit in on 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 one of your sermons one of these days um but i guess so the question is how do you understand that role and what are the dimensions of that role you know it's interesting i I assume in that role everybody is brokenhearted like i think most people don't need uh instruction as much as they need imagination because people's lives are full of pain uh you know all sorts of interpersonal pain and and stress and anxiety mm. i mean it's interesting because mm. we're in a we're in in the safest stage like pinker's new book right like we're in the safest stage you could ever live in mo- you know in human history and yet we're more anxious than ever and afraid of everything and, you know i'm thinking mm. like i'm interviewing this guy this afternoon aj jacobs who just wrote a book on gratitude and he talks about how like psychologists will tell you like gratitude is such a key to happiness and and he says you know happiness doesn't make you grateful grateful gr- gratitude makes you happy and so despite all the apocalyptic things you know that i'm thinking about that we've read in these articles and stuff i mean hey we have it pretty good right we vote we can have peaceful transitions of power uh we've got vaccination <laughs> netflix uh we've got a lot of things so i think it's it, it is good to to contemplate these questions we are because we we want to 
steward the you know what does Shakespeare say? you know all of life's a stage you know you can contribute a verse like what will our verse be and at the same time I think mm. being filled with gratitude because we it it is a great mm. time to be alive I mean we have access I mean you mm. and I can do this podcast right which is even if no one listened would be a lot of fun just because I learn a lot from you it's fun we have we have a good time like things so many things are possible. Mm now that that never have been possible for us i think to, amidst hmm. all of our desire for the good life being grateful for gosh what we have it's a great time to be alive so that's i'm really happy i asked that question now because i think that it opens up a dimension of this whole question this whole conversation that andrew sullivan doesn't talk about in his piece i mean he talks about how sort of you know the institutions of religion are in decline and so you know what we see now in our politics maybe is a way to to try to serve that now underserved need for meaning, for uh, a cultish practice, for a set of devotions, for ritual and prayer. But what I'm also hearing is part of that search for meaning and part of why it might be especially urgent now is uh, widespread personal hurt or pain. Or, or anxiety, or precariousness, and that, that, that may be part of why there is a, uh, a surge in the search for meaning right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that with, you know, you have all those outlets. I mean, you, ha- you have all these... See you soon. This, it's interesting that we have so many outlets for meaning. Like, most of us have more choices about our lives than anybody in world history could imagine, right? If you're in, in, mm-hmm. in the late modern mm-hmm. West. Mm-hmm. And yet we're chronically anxious. You know, people, there's a, a quote I came across yesterday by this brain researcher in Chicago, who, a renowned psychiatrist saying that he thinks that like a lot of our neurosis comes from this like just nagging sense of missed, like undirected guilt and worry about meaning that like, it just manifests itself all these different ways because we don't have a kind of story, a way to a way to mm. make sense of it. And I thought, wow, that's mm. profound. Mm. And and yeah, I mean, that's. Mm. But this, you know, as I think about, like, it's interesting because the Christian Church just chose December, right? Chose winter solstice. Jesus wasn't born in December. I mean, that's just you know, that's that's just we don't know when he was born. It was probably probably not December, certainly. But what? Yeah, probably. I mean, that's just it was an. Next, you're going to tell me Santa Claus doesn't. Exa- wow, come on. There was a Saint. You, saint Nicholas. You did. Saint Nicholas did give presents to children, and he punched somebody at the Council of Nicaea for denying the divinity of Christ. So denying uh, the divinity uh, of Christ puts you on the old. Okay. Saint Nicholas. But I will, I, I, I will. I will. I will. I will. I uh, will take your cool Christmas fact and add one more. So, did you know that all the reindeer pulling Santa's sleigh were female? I did not know that. Even Rudolph? because male ra- male reindeer lose their antlers in the winter. Oh, and it's not just a female reindeer who have their smaller antlers. Is that why Rudolph had the little round. nubs? I, I that, that's that's all I know. All right, I like I'm, that. I'm tr- I, I I'm trying to. You I know, like that. I, I I I see your Christmas fact and raise you one more, but I I'm I'm I've got less intellectual horsepower to work with, so I'm doing my best. Do you ever I'm see the Ali G where he interviews all the religious figures? And he's like, uh, I think you're, you know, he's like, uh, well, Jesus, he was born like in one of those, like in a barn, right? a, a stable, uh, yes, manger, something like that, the priest says. He's like, that's because there was no room, right? Because it was Christmas. <laughs> but, but, you know, the church just adopted winter solstice because they thought, gosh, if this is the light, if this is the feast where we celebrate the light of the world coming to the world, like what better time to do it at the darkest time of the year? And so it's, that's it's, right. it's, where, it's yeah. a beautiful thing. I mean, you know, the... the Hmm. That, that you know, as you're heading into the deep dark of winter, it's like we hope we make it, kind of thing. And it's a great hope and, and it's also, celebration in the midst of that, right? Right. And it's also, I mean, it's an older pagan ritual, right? Right. The, right. There's right. always been the, the celebration of this is the this is the day uh, conquering the night is the winter solstice, absolutely, where we stop to lose that battle and we start to win that battle again. Absolutely. So, I, I was actually so this is this is not a great segue. It's a bit unrelated to uh, the. The more intellectual conversation we've been having here, but I had a phone call earlier today with a, a friend, Australian woman, and um, you know, it just so happened we were on the phone, and she she just gone through a, a difficult situation, breakup with her relationship, and things like that. And and we were talking about, and and they broke up over Christmas. Um, they've got this, you know, they're both international, flying around the world, and and she's based in New York, and he's based back in Australia, and he wasn't willing to uh, make it to spend Christmas with her, and for her that was a relationship breaker. 
because there is something so uh, meaningful for her about Christmas. And we kind of stopped there and talked about it a bit. And, you know, I there is so much about this time of year. It does feel different. And, you know, I am... I am one of those people who I, I really strongly believe that, you know, the the older ancient phases of human consciousness, when we lived in a magical world and we lived in a mythical world before we entered this mental phase that we live in now, uh, are still with us and they still influence us. And there there are so many things happening at a subliminal, to use your word, a subliminal level right now that augment the obvious realities that uh, there's just less work to do and more people have time to pause and reflect. And it does relate to what's happening at a, you know, kind of at a, at a celestial level. And it does relate to what's happening in uh, the, the turning of the seasons. Um, and why do we have such a difficult time just accepting that, that there is some, something more about this time of year and you know whatever particular religion we dress it up in and i, and I feel like that kind of right? there's more there's more in the world uh they understand that than, than in your philosophy horatio or whatever that line from hamlet <laughs> exactly yeah no i mean uh, so yes you caught me on plagiarizing shakespeare um but good man to plagiarize absolutely but i think i i think that that's kind of maybe where we also need to come to terms with this question of the relationship between democracy and religion is is recognizing that there are there are dimensions to our healthy society that reach far deeper than citizenship and and somewhere in in society and in our lives we need to have a place for that yeah absolutely absolutely and if we don't create a place for it then people are going to find one yeah and i i hope this podcast can sort of you know be part of that process for people that you know a space where our conversations can help people find a piece of that meaning you know in pursuit. Well, I think we've successfully not found any answers, but good um, questions. Life is in the questions. But good, good questions. I, I'm gonna have to go away and think about this one for a while. Well, you'll have time over Christmas. We we got time. There we, we go. Got time. All right, things, my friend. Things are slowing down. This was fantastic, Scott. Have a Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year to you. And a Happy New Year. All right, my friend. Talk to you in New Year. Take care, my friend. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us. (laughs) 